Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 6 through 11, uh, but we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 11 uh, for for our sermon this afternoon. And as we just sang, you probably know what we're going to be studying today. Uh, Let's read God's word in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In his Orthodox Catechism, Hercules Collins asks this question. This is question 22. He says, what are those things which are necessary for a Christian to believe? And here's his answer. All things which are promised us in the gospel. The sum of this is briefly comprised in the articles of the Catholic, that means universal, and undoubted faith of all true Christians, commonly called the Apostles' Creed. And what is one of the truths confessed in the Apostles' Creed? Jesus ascended into heaven. This is necessary truth that we must understand, that we must believe, and that we must confess. And this is what we're going to study today is the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to draw some some doctrinal implications of the ascension as well as apply it to our lives. So by way of introduction, I'm going to say three things. The first thing is, let's look at the context of the book of Acts, very briefly to set our context. The book of Acts was written by Luke, and it's really part two of Luke's works. The Gospel of Luke is part one, Acts is part two. In our Bibles, we have them as separate books. The book of John is in between them, but they really are part one and part two, written to Theophilus. And there's an overlap between part one and part two. It's the ascension. In the very end of Luke, we see the ascension happening. In the very beginning of Acts, we also see the ascension happening. The ascension is the linchpin that that takes these two books together. And the the account of the ascension in Acts is is more expanded. And that's what we'll study today. And, And we need to remember why Luke wrote these books. He wanted his readers to have certainty concerning the things that they were taught. And so this, begin, this includes two things. It includes what Jesus began to do before he ascended, that's the Gospel of Luke, and what he continued to do, that's the book of Acts. And so, brothers and sisters, as we study the ascension, I pray that we will have more certainty concerning the things which we believe. The second thing by way of introduction is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. This is where the ascension took place. If you look at verse 12, it tells you, 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And the ascension took place on the Mount of Olives. And this bears some significance for the ascension. And I think it will help us set the scene in our minds as we come to this text. The Mount of Olives is this ridge, really. It's not really a mountain. Um, That's me saying that. It's not really a mountain. It's a hill. It's a long ridge. It was about two miles long. And there was this valley in between it and Jerusalem. So when you're on the Mount of Olives, at, at most places on the western side of it, you could look over and you could see the city of Jerusalem there. And this was a pretty prominent place. You could actually see the Dead Sea from it as well. So on a clear day, you could see very far. And Jesus would go with his disciples to the Mount of Olives on many occasions. He would teach them there. In fact, some of the times he taught his disciples about the fall of Jerusalem, they could see Jerusalem right there across the valley. And you could see this would give give some significance to those passages. Um, When Jesus, in his triumphal entry, goes into Jerusalem, he's going from the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. And it's also where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the western slope of the Mount of Olives before he was arrested. And so now again, Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, um, and this is a place that would provoke many memories for Jesus and his disciples, both wonderful and terrible. And the third thing by way of introduction is the kingdom of Christ. Why would I say that, the kingdom of Christ? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. There's a really important dialogue between Jesus and his 11 disciples. They ask him this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is somewhat of a ridiculous question. Uh, For Jesus had taught many times his disciples about the, the kingdom of God. And we even know between the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, that's what Jesus was teaching them about, was the kingdom of God. And then they still ask, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can imagine it. They're standing there. They're looking across to Jerusalem right there. Will you go take up the throne of Jerusalem? And Jesus responds uh, gently, yet firmly. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He basically tells them, you're asking the wrong question. Jesus is not going to go over to Jerusalem. He's not going to banish the Romans. He's not going to set up the, the throne and take the crown of Israel. He had refused to do this before his death, and he refused to do this after his death. And I think as we study the ascension, it's important to see the proximity of that conversation to what happens. They ask him, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And then shortly after, he ascends to heaven. I think that's an answer to their question right there. And we see through this, uh, this is a whole other sermon really, but we see some things about the, the nature of the kingdom of Christ. It is not one to be advanced through political power or military might. It is a spiritual and a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus also encourages his disciples. Uh, He's about to leave earth, but his presence will still be with his disciples. You can see this in verse 8. As Christ ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit will descend, especially on the day of Pentecost. And although Jesus in his human form will go to heaven, his presence will still be with his church through the Holy Spirit. And it will spread and it will expand and it will fill the whole earth. And so those are our three points of introduction. Let's move into our outline. We have three main points and they're they're pairs. Here's the first point. Ascension, 
and exaltation. Ascension and exaltation. Our text describes the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And I want to unpack this and and study this in some detail. What exactly happened during the ascension? Well, we see in verse 9 that he was lifted up. His body physically rose up into the air. If we read this and we just kind of move on and it doesn't affect us, we've watched too many Marvel movies. That's not natural. That's not how physics work. This is a miracle. Jesus rose up into the air. He was lifted up. And in other places in the New Testament, it's described as him departing or him being taken up. In fact, the early church would call the ascension the taking up. Is what they would call it. Jesus was taken up. We also see that he was seen. Look at verse 9 again. It says, as they were looking on. Luke adds that phrase, as they were looking on. There's no doubt that this event happened. Remember where it happened as well. It was on the Mount of Olives. There's nothing to obstruct the view of his disciples as Jesus ascends into heaven. This happened, and there were many witnesses to it. He was seen as they were looking on. And then we see the phrase, into heaven, the terminus of his ascension. Where did he go? He went into heaven. And now we have to figure out, what does this mean? What does it mean that he went into heaven? Some take this to be the sky, or as it's called, the airy heaven. He went into the sky. But is that where he went? That he did go there, that is true. But there's more. Others have taken it as space, the starry heaven as if he went out to Jupiter or Saturn or something like that. But the church throughout the ages confesses and believes that this is the highest heaven, the heaven above the heavens, what Paul calls the third heaven. Jesus is not some kind of glorified astronaut out in space. He ascended to the heaven above the heavens. And scripture sometimes will use the word heaven or the heavens as an analogy for the highest heaven something beyond our space and time. Think about it. If you look up into the heavens, even with a telescope or even with the most advanced scientific instrument, can you see the end of the universe? We haven't even seen it yet, and we have very powerful technology. You see, this is a good analogy of the highest heaven because it seems infinite to us, but it is finite. We know it is. And so Jesus ascends into the highest heavens. Now, what does this exactly mean? Listen to this quote by Zacharias Ursinus. He describes the highest heaven as that immense, bright, clear, and glorious space which is without and above this world and these visible heavens in which God manifests himself immediately and gloriously. It's a good definition. But he quickly adds that God is not contained in this heaven. It is where his glory is manifested immediately, he says. And so when we consider the ascension of our Lord, we need to consider that Jesus Christ locally and visibly ascended into the highest heavens. What did the angels tell the disciples in verse 11? They said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, this Jesus, his whole person. Now, as we speak this way, I want to qualify something. God the Son, the second person, of the Trinity is omnipresent. He is in all places. He did not lose any part of his Godhead or deity when he incarnated. Now, this is difficult to understand. It's somewhat of a mystery. 
But we need to confess that God the Son is omnipresent while at the same time uniting himself to the human body and soul of Jesus. And so we can say in a precise manner that with respect to Christ's human nature, he ascended locally and visibly into heaven. Look further at our text. We also see a cloud. A cloud took Jesus out of their sight. There's some debate about what this cloud means. Is it just a cloud or is it something more? And although some take this to be just an ordinary cloud to hide Jesus' ascent into heaven from his disciples, many in the church strongly assert that this is something divine. This is a cloud that has more significance than just a mere vapory mist. Remember the the glory cloud in the Old Testament that rested on the Ark of the Covenant? And also, if we know even the story of Jesus, remember the transfiguration when Jesus went up onto a mountain and there Peter Peter and the other disciples saw Moses and Elijah with him and Peter says, let's make three tabernacles, one for Elijah and one for Moses and one for Jesus. And then it says a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud and it said, this is my son, listen to him. And so here at the ascension, again, Jesus on a mountain, now ascending into heaven, a cloud covers him from view. This is a sign of his Godhead, of his deity, the glory of the ascending Christ. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. I think this is a helpful prophecy of what happens here. Daniel chapter 7, you can just listen as well. We'll read verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13. This is Daniel under the inspiration of God, and he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, who is that one who is like a son of man who comes before with the clouds of heaven and he comes before the ancient of days and he's given dominion over all things? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there, there's so many allusions to the Old Testament here. I don't have time to, to talk with, about them more. But there's one more thing I want to mention here. We see in the ascension something of the covenant of redemption. God the Father made a commitment or a covenant with his son that if the son fulfilled his part of the covenant, then the father would raise him from the dead and glorify him and take him up into glory. God the Son did this. He took on flesh. He humbled himself, as we read in Philippians, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God has highly exalted him. He has given him the name above every name. Our ascended Lord is exalted, and it is because of his work, because of what he has done, he is ascended. And this leads us to consider something else. This is quite interesting. When we say that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven... Think about this. This is the first time that the human nature of Jesus Christ enters into heaven. As the early church father Cyprian wrote, the Lord ascended into heaven, not where the word of God had not been before, that means God the Son, because he was always in heaven and remained in the Father. 
but where the word made flesh did not sit before. Think of the glorious, amazing, majestic event when Jesus Christ ascends and comes into heaven. I was just thrilled to think of that. John Fulvell describes what, what may have occurred at this meeting, this heavenly welcoming. He says, Oh, what jubilations of the blessed angels were heard in heaven, how the whole city of God was moved at his coming. The very heavens echoed and resounded on that account. Yea, the triumph is not ended at this day, nor ever shall. This is a wonderful exaltation of our Lord as he ascends into heaven. And just a few chapters later in Acts 7, what happens when Stephen is being stoned to death? He looks up into heaven, it says, by the Holy Spirit, and he sees the glory of God. And what else does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there. He's there in heaven. And Stephen saw him. Well, how can we apply this, the ascension and the exaltation of our Lord? There's many things, but I have two. The first thing is simply, let us praise our ascended Lord. Let us praise our ascended Lord. Understanding the ascension strengthens our faith, and I think it thrills our souls. Consider and worship your ascended Lord. He was exalted and taken up in glory. In Luke 24, the other account of the ascension by Luke, we read that his disciples responded to the ascension by doing what? They worshipped him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising God. And that should be our response, should it not, of our ascended Lord. Let us meditate on this truth. I love the hymn that we sang today, number 212. How many alleluias did we sing? <laughs> It gives you a short snippet about Christ's ascension and then just goes, Alleluia, like five or six times. Praise the Lord. As 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not yet, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. This should be our reaction to our ascended Lord. Inexpressible joy. Second application Consider your union with the ascended Christ. Consider your union with the ascended Christ. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. So therefore, a human being, already glorified because of his resurrection, sits on the throne in heaven right now. And if you're united with that ascended Lord, what does this mean for you? Remember what Jesus told his disciples? In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. That's where he went, to prepare a place for you if you are united with Jesus Christ. He is the forerunner. And this is very encouraging. As Pastor Sam says, as he is, so shall I be. And I want us just to consider and meditate on our union with the ascended Christ. And this is not just something that is a future hope, but it's also a present reality. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 6? He uses the past tense here. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our, we are united with Christ and he is in heaven. As some theologians say, our flesh sits in heaven. And what's our response to that? Well, Colossians 3, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. If your Savior and Lord is sitting in heaven, then think on him there. And I think that the ascension and the resurrection too supplies a comfort for your body and soul. Do you struggle with a disease or a chronic weakness or illness or cancer or mental illness? Well, have courage, for the Lord has ascended as a human into heaven in a glorified state, and as he is, so shall we be. As we sit here right in this room right now, there sits in heaven the Lord Jesus Christ, a human being, and I think that should give us hope. As Paul writes in Philippians 3, For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so there's the first point, ascension and exaltation. Let's move on to the second point. Session and intercession. Session and intercession. These two things are not found directly in our passage, but they are implications of the ascension. What did Jesus do when he ascended into heaven? What does he even do right now while he sits in heaven? Let's consider firstly his session. Uh, Session is just sitting down. And so when we say, we speak of the session of Jesus Christ, it means he sat down at the right hand of God. You've heard this. This is repeated many times in the scriptures. The scriptures speak about it in the Old Testament. Um, I'll just share two places. One is Psalm 110. This is a very quoted passage even in the New Testament. What does it say? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, David's greater son, David's son, and yet David's Lord, he sat down at the right hand of Jehovah in heaven. And there's much more there, but for time we'll move on. If we go back to Daniel 7 as well, he doesn't just come with the clouds of heaven as presented before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days gives him dominion over all things. And this helps us understand his session. It's not inactivity. It's not disinterest that he sits down. He sits down in authority and dominion and power. As Daniel 7 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this is one that will never end. It's unbeatable. And that his kingdom will not be destroyed. And I think the emphasis on God's right hand points to the fact that Jesus has been exalted and honored above all things. And and as I said earlier, just because he's pictured as sitting does not mean he is inactive. He He will put all enemies under his feet. Now, what are the implications of his session? He ascends to heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Well, the first implication is that he is God. Only God could do this. Because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, he was taken up in glory into heaven, and he's given power and glory over all things. Could a mere man be exalted in such a manner? No. The one who sits on the throne of God must be God. And this is an evidence of our Lord's deity. What does it say in Revelation 5? When all things in the entire universe cry out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord is God. 
The second thing, number two, is that the ascended Jesus is head of his church. The ascended Jesus is head of his church. If we take what we know about the ascension and his session and we apply it to the doctrine of the church, it gives us very important truths. His reign will never end. He is the supreme, all-powerful king and head of his church. He has no rival. Our confession says this in chapter 26. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is the ascended Lord. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. He has all the authority. And those who oppose or supplant the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord, truly would be called Antichrist. He alone is head of the church. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He protects us from our enemies. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The last last, uh, implication of his session is that it comforts us. Think about it. Our ascended Lord sits at God's right hand and all dominion is given to him. If you're a believer, no matter what the darkest road you may walk on or the deepest affliction that you may bear, Your king is seated at God's right hand. Remember, when you dismay and despair in the face of persecution, that your king sits at God's right hand and all things are in his control. And remember, when you go to die, that your Lord is seated at the right hand of God. And as Stephen saw a vision of his Savior in heaven before he died, as you draw your last breath, believer, and this earth fades from view with its wickedness and its weaknesses, you will see him seated at God's right hand. All right, let's move on to his intercession. His intercession. No ascension, no intercession. It is only because the Lord has ascended into heaven that he is able to intercede for us before God. And the doctrine of the intercession of our Lord is wonderful. We don't have much time to to really go into it, but let me say a few things. Consider the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the sake of Israel. Now, we need to know the architecture of the temple, and I think we all know it quite well. There were three distinct areas, the outer courtyard, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. And as you went in towards the Holy of Holies, it got progressively holier, for it was near the presence of God. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the priest would symbolically ascend into the presence of God. Think about it. As he goes through the courtyard, he goes by the big bronze sea with the cattle. This is like the land, the earth. And then he goes into the holy place. And he, as he passes through the veil, which had the stars of heaven embroidered on it, he symbolically ascends into the very presence of God. We also see this as Moses ascends Mount Sinai to the top of this mountain to, to commune with God. But what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven, we need to keep the symbolism in mind. The the book of Hebrews beautifully captures what Jesus has done because it is far greater than what Moses or what the high priest ever did. 
What does Hebrews say? For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And remember when the high priest, before going into God's presence, what would he do? He would make a sacrifice for his own sin and the sins of Israel. Now Jesus Christ need make no sacrifice for himself. And that's the argument of Hebrews. He is greater than all those priests, but he did make a sacrifice. He made a sacrifice for all his elect, and then he ascended into the very presence of God. You see, the ascension of Jesus is closely associated with his priestly work. And so Jesus ascends before the throne of God above, and he presents himself in all the work that he had done and finished on the cross. And the Father accepted his sacrifice for his elect. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And what does scripture say in Hebrews 7? He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the ascended Christ, he's not only seated at the right hand of God, but he intercedes for us. Now, what does that even mean? What is intercession? Well, we could say that Christ's intercession in heaven is the continual application of his perfect sacrifice for all who belong to him. Let me make it very clear. Jesus' intercession does not mean he is continually sacrificing himself over and over again before the Father. No, we know from Hebrews 10, 12 that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Christ is not sacrificing himself in any way over and over again before the Father. Instead, our ascended Lord pleads our cause, not by suffering again, but by saying, I bled and died for that one. I will remember their sins no more. You see, it's, it's just amazing. God's justice is appeased in the perfect work of Jesus, and he continually is our advocate. And remember the, the, the important thing I said earlier about how Jesus in his human nature ascended into heaven. That's important. For God the Son incarnate in his human nature stands before the throne. One of Adam's sons pleads for Adam's race, at least those who are elect. And in this, he is the perfect mediator, for he is both God and man. As John of Damascus wrote, Through him, human nature rose from the lowest depths of earth, higher than the skies. And in his person sat down on the throne his father had prepared for him. This is our ascended priest, brothers and sisters. And what application could we have from the intercession of Christ? Well, it's simply this. Have confidence in your ascended priest. Have confidence in your ascended priest. I could not say it better than Hebrews 10. Let me just read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That should be our response. But that's not always true, is it? Sometimes, as believers, we forget that our high priest intercedes 
for us. But that doesn't change the fact that he does if we are in Christ. The Apostle John, writing of believers in 1 John 2, 1, says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We can sometimes slip and fall into this state of mind that we're not good enough to be forgiven. Then, therefore, we have to do good works to earn our way back into good standing with God. And you know what this leads to? It leads to despair and depression because our good works are not that good, are they? And we immediately see through them. We need to remember that our high priest, our ascended Lord, intercedes for us. And this is all grounded on what he did for us on Calvary's hill. And brother or sister, is your conscience afflicted? Are you weighed down with guilt, whether real or false? Remember, as Paul says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so remember, no ascension, no intercession. It is because our Lord has ascended as a man into heaven and has sat down at the right hand of God that he can intercede for us. What does Charles Wesley write in his beautiful song? Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. All right, so let's move on to our third and our final point. Return and remember. Return and remember. We've studied Jesus Christ's ascension, his exaltation, his session, his intercession. And now let's look to the very end of this passage in verse 11. It speaks of the Lord's return. Uh, the angels say in verse 11, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus was locally and visibly taken up into heaven, and he will return from heaven in the same manner. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus Christ ascended, and he will descend, brothers and sisters. He will return, as the angels say, in the same way in which he ascended. And notice the effect that this has on those disciples, those apostles who stand there. Knowing that their Lord, who they saw ascend into heaven, will return. This gives them a hope. This gives them boldness. This gives them so much courage for the things that they did. You can go through the rest of the New Testament and you can look back at the, ap the apostles drawing on this, this eschatological hope that the Lord will return, their Lord will return. And it makes sense for things they teach, for the piety that they, they implore from their, their, their churches and their recipients. This makes a lot of sense. And Paul says that, he, Paul actually views Christians as those who have already started to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. We live in the already, not yet. We have not experienced the resurrection of our bodies and the joys of the, the new creation. We have not ascended. But although we have not experienced these things, we have been spiritually resurrected. And because our Lord was resurrected and glorified, so we will be as well. And in this lies our hope, the return of the king. He will usher in the consummated, perfect, endless, beautiful, beautiful, and ineffable new creation. Can't you wait? 
And so I ask you, are you ready for the return of the ascended Lord? He who ascended will descend once more. And are you ready? Remember how Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And as Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Is the second coming something that you fear, dear Christian? Well, I don't think it should be, if you are truly in Christ. Let's listen to Hercules Collins again in his catechism. Question 51. What comfort do you have by the coming of Christ to judge the living and dead? Here's his answer. That in all my miseries and imperfections, I look with my head lifted up. For the very same who before yielded himself to the judgment of God for me and took all malediction from me will come as judge from heaven to throw all his and my enemies into everlasting pains. He will translate me with all his chosen to himself into celestial joys and everlasting glory. That should be our response and our attitude and perspective to this through the return of our king. And so, brothers and sisters, look with your heads lifted up. Jesus bore the judgment you deserved, and he will come again as judge from heaven, and he will defeat all your and his enemies, and you will be translated into the state of glory. That boggles my mind. And as Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. And as his church responds, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, we talked about the return part. What about the remember? Well, what do we do in the meantime? We await our ascended Lord who will descend from heaven. What do we do? Now, there's countless things we could speak of, but I want to, to speak on one thing, and that's the Lord's Supper. I want to take what we have learned about the ascension and then apply it to the Lord's Supper. If the Lord Jesus has ascended locally into heaven and sits at God's right hand, then he is not physically on earth. As William Ames puts it, Christ's human nature is rightly and truly not with us on earth. The bread and the wine that you see before you are not the physical body of our Lord Jesus. They are symbols, and they cannot be changed into the physical body of our Lord. It's in heaven. The doctrine of Christ's ascension guards us against many errors regarding the Lord's Supper. Now you might ask, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? And the Reformation, there's lots of ink spilled on this. But we confess in our confession that Christ is present here spiritually. Here's what the confession says. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, we eat and we drink the, the bread and the wine, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. What do we do while we wait for his return? We remember. And one important thing is we do not just remember what Christ has done in the past at Calvary's Hill. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. We do remember. But there's something else here. We remember that he will return. The Lord's Supper looks to the past and also looks to the present at the same time. And so, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are not only looking back at his cross, but we are also looking forward to his crown and the consummated kingdom of Christ. And so, 
Brothers and sisters, as we partake of the sacrament today, remember our ascended Lord. According to his human nature is in heaven, where he rules all things. That it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we spiritually feed upon his body and his blood. We receive by faith all his benefits. And that as we partake, we long for and we anticipate that great day when our Lord Jesus, who ascended, will descend and return. And so we have studied our Lord's ascension. We have seen that he visibly and locally ascended into the highest heaven, and there he sat down in power and majesty at God's right hand. He continually intercedes for his elect. He will return one day in the same manner in which he ascended. And that as we remember him in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes, when we will dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will see him face to face. Let's pray. O Lord, you have fed us with your word. And Lord, we have studied the ascension and the exaltation and the session and the intercession and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we have great joy and gratitude in these things. May we look forward to your return, O Father. And may our hearts continually be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we are united with our ascended Lord, Father, I pray that we will have great certainty and hope. For, Lord, as he is, so shall we be. And so may we be ready, Lord, for your second coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And, Lord, we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.